Welcome to the Teacher Planning Podcast. These special episodes are centred around alternative educational topics such as teaching and learning, time management and anything that's, well, not lesson planning. Welcome to another special episode on the Teacher Planning Podcast which focuses on teaching abroad. Now on today's episode I am joined by Mark and Dan who are both going to chat about their experiences of teaching, well, teaching together in Singapore. So first of all, I'll start with you, Dan. And uh, for those listeners, you might recognise Dan's voice already because I have done, I have done a, te- uh, well, I have done a history podcast with Dan. So welcome back, Dan. Um, for well, those listeners who may not have heard of you already, uh, do you want to give a quick introduction to yourself? Yeah, my name's Daniel, and I think I'm in my 20th year of teaching. Uh, I've taught in three international schools, as well as uh, in the UK, which is where the bulk of my teaching took place. Um, And yeah, I spent uh, three happy years uh, in Singapore, and that's what I'll focus on chatting to you about today. Okay, and on to you, Mark. Well, first of all, Rob, thank you for having me today. Uh, My name is Mark Dickinson. This is my 19th year of teaching. 15 of those years I've taught in the United States in the state of Georgia. Two years in Singapore, with, had the pleasure of working with Dan, and I also taught two years in Zimbabwe. My uh, emphasis has been on English as a second language, which is just a fancy way of saying I work with kids whose native language is something other than English. Okay, so l- let's, let's start off. Where, what stage were you both at? when you were working together? What stage of your career when you're working together in Singapore? Uh, So if I can tackle that one, um, I I taught for many, many years in the UK, loved teaching in the UK, um, but I just fancied a new challenge. Singapore was my first international teaching post uh, and I learned so much about being an, not just a teacher, but an international teacher from working in that country. So, you know, I'd been a teacher of history, I've been a head of year, I've been, I think I was an anti-bullying czar in one school, which is a, a, my favorite teaching title of all. Um, I've been a Senko uh, for five or six years and I've been an assistant head teacher as well. Um, so I just felt like I didn't really want to go up the rung any further than that. And I wanted a new challenge and international teaching seemed really exciting for me. Uh, I've always wanted to, to teach. I've done a lot of work volunteering in my summer holidays because I often got quite bored particularly as a single teacher in my, in my summer holidays. Uh, and so international teaching was, was, you know, something that drew me towards it. And when I decided to, to teach abroad, I had already been working for 15 years. And because I'm single, I would always disappear for a month or two in the summer to travel abroad. This is obviously one of the perks of being a teacher. And finally, I came to the realization that why just travel abroad for a month or two a, a year? Why not live abroad in addition to traveling. So that's what would, uh, gave me the motivation to go ahead and, and uh, go overseas. Okay, so now, now one of the things that I, I just said before we started recording is I'm, I'm in a stage of my life where I'm married and I've recently had a child. And I said, ah, oh, I think my, my, um, that ship sailed. And then Dan, uh, Dan instantly corrected me. Well, yeah, um, like I say, since I, I'm now, I've now been t- in teaching in for quite a while. And after Singapore, I moved to Egypt and then I moved to China. Um, and yeah, I met my, my wife in Singapore and we had our uh, first baby in China. Um, so I think one of the miscon- common misconceptions really is that it is 
something that young single people maybe who want a good payday um, look to do and some people teach in two years and move on and maybe do a circuit but actually I've met an extraordinary number of teachers um, particularly in China actually who have a very normal setup with their marriage and their kids and so on um, and who stay put for quite a long time uh, so in some ways it's although I will talk about how it's different a bit later but in some ways it's it's quite a stable um, career as a, as a family man. Okay. And, and I think that to echo your thoughts, Dan, that um, I was actually the uh, exception uh, rather than the norm in, in both Singapore and Zimbabwe. And by that, I mean that I found that most of the teachers were married and, and had children. And actually it's to the benefit of the international school to hire someone who has uh, uh, a particular teaching spouse, because then you get two for one. Uh, and, and all my friends did just how lucky they were to uh, be able to travel with their kids and to be in these world-class schools uh, where they aren't necessarily having to pay tuition where they normally would. So it seems like, you know, from a, a, a family perspective, it's, it's a great place to be. Okay, so that, I mean, I think you've actually just answered one of the questions that I'd lined up for you both. And I, I was going to say, so you both taught in, in an international school rather than a local school. That's right, yeah. It was, um, like, Singapore's quite um, interesting that there's only a given number of schools that are, international schools that are allowed to accommodate Singaporean students. And my school was, our school was one of them. So I think we were roughly 40% Singaporean and, 60% international in terms of intake, which makes it interesting to draw parallels between local and international schools. So, so why, why do you think that is? Why are Singaporean students not allowed to study at international, well, at a lot of international schools over there? Well, it's, uh, I mean, it's, Singapore is a one-party state with the People's Action Party. Um, and the history, like I'm a history teacher, the history of Singapore is fascinating because in the 1960s, I think it had a, I think it was like a 50, 60% literacy rate. Uh, whereas now, if you look at Singapore, it's often seen as one of, you know, the roaring tiger economies of Asia. It always tops league tables in terms of literacy and numeracy and those kind of things. Uh, and Singaporean students at universities across the world, including in the UK, are always amongst the very, very, very best students. Um, so to answer your question, I think, I think, I think there is a difference between local and internationals in Singapore in terms of uh, teaching styles and pedagogy. Um, and I found it really interesting, particularly with year seven, seeing how students from local schools who joined an international school differed in their approach to studies. So for me, I don't know if this was similar with Mark, but for me, I'd often see students who would come in and they were absolutely used to learning by rote. So students would expect their teacher to say, turn to page 12, Answer, read the text, answer the questions and get on with it. And behaviourally, wonderful. But if you ask the same students who came to join an international school, um, you know, to stand in front of the class and deliver a presentation, they often struggled with it. So I think, you know, there's a, there's a question that the Singaporean government have looked at in the last few years about creativity, and I know they've tried to address it. Um, but I think international, you know, Western-style teaching does create uh, maybe more independent, more creative minded students in that setting than the local Singaporean setting and that's that was one of my out my takeaways from year seven teaching. That's, that's fascinating to hear really is the fact of I mean I, I've heard again I've not been in 
teaching as long as you both but i have heard people talk about the um the students in singapore and how they are and how the singapore system they, they do produce some fantastic results but do you think i mean there's so much emphasis on schools particularly in the uk now they're saying we are not exam factories we are not exam factories and you aim to prepare students for the big wide world and so i mean these students coming out of these schools in singapore they're coming out with great results but do you think that they are prepared for the big wide world Hmm. I am. I, um, I mean, it's important that I share a little bit of my background. So I most of my career has been in a public school where the uh, expectations might be a little bit different. So in Georgia, about 86 percent of the kids will go on to university. Uh, excuse me. Uh, about 86 percent of the kids will graduate secondary and about 70 percent go on to university versus in a place like Singapore. It's it's just essentially understood that almost all kids are going to go to university. So you have an extremely um, high caliber of students. I, I was completely impressed with um, what I saw there, the, the, the level of academia. Um, getting back to, to one of the things that, that Dan mentioned, though, um, there, there is more of an emphasis on the rote memorization um, so I, I saw um, sometimes a, a, a lack of creativity or, or a lack of a motivation maybe to, to be creative. I'll give you a good example. Um, in several instances, I would deal with um, either private companies or governmental organizations with questions. And my experience in America was more that the, the person answering the phone would feel equipped to go ahead and answer the question, would be able to handle problems versus in Singapore, I would always be put on hold. It always seemed like that things were passed up the line for uh, the, the supervisor to make decisions. So I found that while the kids are extremely bright uh, and, and as Dan said, very good at rope memorization, maybe I did not see as much independence and, and, and uh, sort of thinking outside the box that, I, that I've noticed in other places. Yeah, I, th I think you, uh, like there, there's a phrase commonly used by many students in Singapore, which is kiasu, which I believe is a Malaysian word, which translates roughly as perfectionism. And the, I think sometimes with the, the, the Singaporean students joining the international school, there's a feeling of, you know, we have to do it the right way. Whereas, you know, if you look at the modern world around us, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, whoever, you know, it just takes one of those people to change the entire thing rather than, you know, many, many people doing things the same way. So, um, so yeah, for me, it, it was that idea of kiasu and kind of gearing kids away from it and saying, well, you don't need to be perfect. You just need to think differently and do things your own way. Okay. So, um, and again, that's absolutely fasc fascinating. And it gives us a bit of an insight into the kind of Singapore education system, even though you, neither of you taught in a local school, did you? Um, so tell me this, why would parents, so I'm assuming parents had to pay, quite, well, a fair bit of money to send their kids to your school, did they? Uh, the answer to that, I believe, is yes, for the most part. Um, but there were scholarships available and those kind of things for right. students who were high achieving and from lower income families. So why would a local student attend an international school then? 
Um, if I tackle it, I'll give you. I'll give you one example that I saw. I was lucky enough to go on a. I'm a history teacher. I was asked to go on a field trip with a, a team of geographers, and we went to the botanical gardens. And I'll never forget this because I I, I saw something called a pong pong tree. And I just remember thinking it sounded so exotic and wonderful. A pong pong tree. I've never heard of one of those. And it was behind. It was kind of closed off. Um, it's sort of been wooded up. And the geography, he, he was there, he was going to talk about soils and podzols and leaves and acidic whatever and things that I knew nothing about. And I remember he jumped over uh, so he could be close to the roots. And he was about to start his teacher spiel and expo. And the students, I've looked around and they looked absolutely aghast that a teacher jumped over, you know, effectively a, a barrier. And they said, sir, what are you doing? You've just jumped over, you know. And, and, and he said, well, there's no sign. But in Singapore, like I say, anyone who visits Singapore, you'll, you'll realise it's a city with many, many rules, as I'm sure Mark will will appreciate. Um, but, you know, for them, the, the culture was, we can't jump over unless we're told we have to. Whereas for him, he was, he was a British teacher, for him, the culture was, well, unless there's something saying I can't do it, I can do it. And, you know, if you go around the MRT, which is the tube in, in Singapore, you'll see many, many signs saying, no kissing, no spitting, no cycling, no whatever. You know, I, I used to go around and collect these on my phone. Um, hundreds and hundreds of you can't do this signs. And that permeated into, I think, local Singaporean culture to the point at which, you know, even in public, people wouldn't do things unless they were told they had to. So if you went to a concert, um, I went to a couple of concerts at the you know, Formula One Grand Prix and so on, people wouldn't get off their seats and dance unless they were told they could do. So there was a real culture, I think, and it started in schools of, you know, don't do things unless you're told you can do. And again, it's it's, it's a wonderful country, but it is a one-party state. And I think part of the kind of authoritarianism of government trickles down to, to school. And I, as a British teacher from a very liberal background, I can do what I want, I can protest, I can have freedom of speech and so on. That was really fascinating for me to observe on a kind of school level and also as an adult. So saying that, do you think that is, do you think it's a way of people rebelling against the system somewhat to send their children to international school? I, I think like, I'll, I'll give you a good example. Imagine that um, you are living in rural Cambodia and you are a person of some financial means um, so do you want to send your child, and this is certainly not a knock on the Cambodian public school system, but would you like to send your child to a school in Cambodia, which might have 40 or 50 kids in the classroom, or would you like the opportunity, again, if you had the financial means, to send that child to an English-speaking school, which is going to open up all sorts of possibilities, where there might be 20 students in that classroom, um, I, I think, and, and, and this has happened throughout China with the, the rise of the middle class, that everyone wants to send their kids to English-speaking schools. Because again, you have all of these opportunities open. So I could see if I were in this position around the world and I had some money, I would like my kids to be educated in English-speaking school, getting this exposure to um, uh, very fine teachers from around the world. Why wouldn't I want to send them to an international school? There's to me so many perks and that opportunity to make so many connections and open doors that you wouldn't necessarily have 
with just your local public school. Right, okay. So, yeah, I mean, that answers the question perfectly because, I mean, you are basically saying it's like sending your child to a private school where you get all these perks, but over there, the fact that it's English-speaking is just and it's just a cherry on the top, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah. Could, could I just jump in there, Mother? I totally agree with everything you've said, um, but it's just triggered in my head. Do you remember National Day? Because National Day was one of my favourite days because, um, again, coming to the UK, different holidays were always exciting as a teacher if you get a day off work. And for National Day, we'd get a three-day <laughs> weekend. And National Day, you used to put the TV on. On National Day, uh, you'd see um, you know, parades taking place, uh, big military um, shows of strength taking place. Um, and you know, Singapore is such a small country. I think, I think it's 20 miles from one side to the other, give or take, small diamond-shaped country. If you go at one Raffles place or somewhere like this, you can literally see the borders from one building. So it's a very small place. And as a result of its geography and of course its history, broken away from Malaysia and so on, there was an incredible sense of nationalism that I felt again, both in school and in the wider community. So you'd see um, HDB building, these huge apartments and everybody would have a flag hanging from it. And again, like UK, we're fairly nationalist. I, I imagine the US there's a certain amount of nationalism as well, but in Singapore, it was like nothing I had ever seen. And in schools, in every assembly, students had to begin the assembly singing the national anthem. The only line of which I remember was Madrula Singapura, and the year sevens at the front would sing it really loudly, and the year 11s plus at the back would be mumbling along. <laughs> but, it, but it was that sense of, you know, of, of um, this engineered uh sense of nationalism that came from the government it came from the ministry of education that was piped into schools i thought was really interesting so i think that contrasts well with the you know the, the fact it wasn't entrepot it was a and it is a, a you know a, an outward looking country internationally and english speaking um i think english i think english is the only language i think that's taught in schools and i think lee kuan yu banned chinese at a certain point to make it an international hub but it kind of contrasts well with that sense of nationalism that that sits both in schools and in the wider community so you're saying that that's what happens in the local schools and then the international schools they do their own thing or were you saying that is what happens in the international school as well that's what happens in the international school so you know students would start the day with the pledge um and i've written the pledge down here in my notes just to get ready and it was we the citizens of singapore uh pledge uh, ourselves as one united people regardless of race, um, language or religion, to build a democratic society based on justice and equality um, so as to achieve happiness, prosperity uh, for our nation. And our student, as a form tutor, my students would have to say that out loud in verbatim at the start of every single day and in assembly they'd have to sing the national anthem. So, so whilst there is this incredible, as Mark says, incredible sense of looking out to the wider world, there was also a really, really big nationalist element within the country and within schools. I mean, that's fascinating to hear because personally, when I think of Singapore, I don't think of that. I might think of um, I might think of that way as when you're thinking about China, maybe. But not necessarily Singapore. Again, I mean, because look, I've, I've spent three days in the country in my whole life. So I'm not exactly going to know the whole culture, am I? But I, I do find that fascinating. So as two 
individuals who have taught there, can you, I'm not going to say, can you summarize your experience, but how did this affect your lifestyle and your, and did it affect your teaching at all? Uh, I, I think that, that um, what struck me about, and, and again, talking about Singapore teaching there was that uh, it reminded me much more of a university setting in the sense that uh, the, the kids didn't need a lot of hand-holding. Uh, it, it felt like the teacher could essentially do a lecture, throw things out there, and the kids would run with it versus the model I was used to, which was more of a, you know, teach a little bit, uh, uh, help them through it, get feedback. But uh, it, it, it very much reminded me of almost a university approach. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Mark. I think, you know, there will, I think maybe one lesson um, I think I was late for a lesson because of an exam or overrunning or something similar. And I arrived, you know, coming from the UK, assuming the worst that students would be throwing things and desks upturned and so on. And yeah, they were just sat there. One of them had gone to the front, told the rest what to do. And they were sat answering the questions and working perfectly. So um, behaviorally, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before uh, or ever have since. Um, students were really in charge of their own learning. Uh, those real stakeholder ownership, um, lovely, lovely, lovely students. And, you know, going back to, um, you know, we spoke about National Day as one of the holidays. Um, I don't know if you remember Teacher's Day, Mark. Teacher's Day was, it's probably the one takeaway I'd love to take back to the UK from Singapore because there was, I can't remember the date, but there was one day a year when, um, called Teacher's Day, when students would, they'd write cards, they'd give you homemade cookies, um, you know, you literally walk home with a haul of, you know, baked goods and things and Marks and Spencer and wonderful things. Um, and you really, really did feel appreciated that day. Um, at our school, the parents would come in, they cooked a meal for the staff. Um, and it was, a, there was a big show of appreciation for teachers. Um, so that, again, that's Teacher's Day, I think, is something that, that I have to mention as something that was really quite wonderful and exceptional in Singapore. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you there that, that uh, particularly in Singapore, that I, I think working in America, we're, as a teacher, I'm used to being a political punching bag. Uh, any new administration that comes in tells you all the things that are wrong with the educational system. Uh, parents like to complain about uh, what, what teachers are doing wrong. In Singapore, I thought it was just the opposite, a tremendous amount of respect for teachers. Uh, and I think that that filtered down in, into the, the attitude of the students. It, 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 it was such a refreshing uh, change and, and such a wonderful environment um, to, to be a part of. Wow. Okay. Do you think that will come? I'm just trying to think if they would ever have anything like that here. And if they did have anything like that here, what the students would actually do and where they would actually show, I think you'd get a handful of students showing appreciation You'd get, I would also get a handful of students not turning up to school that particular day. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> so we, we've talked about the local students that attend the international school. What's the background of the other students that are attending the school? I'm not sure, Dan, if you've taught in just international baccalaureate schools. That's been my uh, experience. And at international baccalaureate school, it's a, it's a, nat a worldwide program. And uh, like, imagine that, that I am a, uh, either an international businessman or I work for an NGO. 
And so let's say every couple of years, I'm going to move around. I might go to Singapore. I might go to Malaysia. I might go to Thailand. Uh, the benefit of an international baccalaureate school is that you have this similar curriculum worldwide. Um, when the kids get to their last year, they're taking the same international baccalaureate exams worldwide. So I can go from country to country to country. I'm getting the same education. And if I do well uh, it, it, on the international baccalaureate exams in Singapore, or if I do well in Thailand, um, those same scores are recognized worldwide. And, and, and so it's a, to me, a, a tremendous benefit to the parents that were, regardless of where you are in the world, you get a good education and you can ensure that your child will get into a, uh, a top flight school. So I ran into uh, a lot of my international students, either their parents were uh, international business people or they were working for these nonprofit organizations, particularly in Africa, like a, um, a feed the world or save the children uh, type of situation where they didn't necessarily want to send their child to a local school where the quality of education can differ. But even more than that, the parents always had an eye towards university. And with an international baccalaureate school, you know exactly what you're gonna get and you know the quality of education and that your children will have a good chance to go to a fine university. Yeah, and I think building on that as well, there's, there's the concept, and it's probably a whole nother podcast, but the concept of third generation kids. Uh, I think Barack Obama is the most famous of those. It's people who were born in one country, raised in another, and just exposed to many different cultures. Um, and again, as a new parent myself, my little girl's 15 months today, um, I'm very conscious of, you know, making sure she appreciates her heritage and her history and where she comes from, but at the same time, understanding where she currently is and all the benefits of, of that as well. So I think a lot of international students, that 60 to 10 I was talking about, um, go through that kind of dichotomy, that dilemma, um, you know, even in terms of things like their accents, um, of where they're from and, and that sense of belonging. So I think that's something that most international schools are very much conscious of uh, and most international parents are as well. But pros and cons to that. Okay. Um, now, something you mentioned at the start, Dan, was um, you'd, I don't know, you, you'd be working in all these different jobs in the UK and, and they're all, you did mention about salary. Now, in, in, gen, in general, because I don't want to, I don't want to talk about every school like it's the same out there. But what, how does a salary compare in Singapore than it would do to salary in the UK? And I'm going to ask the same to you as well, Mark, about the states. Yeah, you know, I'm probably the worst person in the world to ask about salary because um, I, I genuinely do teach for the love of teaching rather than the money. And I, I my wife probably would answer that question better than me. Um, but I mean, what I would say is in the UK, um, you know, like, as a Senko, I was on pretty, pretty good money. As an assistant head, I was on pretty good money. Um, when I moved to Singapore, I gave up teaching responsibility, uh, sorry, non-teaching responsibilities in order to enjoy the benefits of the lifestyle and those kind of things. And my salary was pretty much the same. So as a, as a no responsibility, no TLR teacher in Singapore, I was bringing home about the same amount as I was as an assistant head in the UK. So it is pretty well paid. Um, but then relatively internationally teaching wise, uh, and again, I'm sure Mark will concur. Um, 
you got this wonderful paycheck in Singapore. And you looked at it and you thought, wow, I'm quids in. And then you saw your rent. And I think Singapore, I, I, I'm not sure if it still is, but a couple of years ago, it overtook Tokyo as the most expensive city in the world. And it's the second most densely populated city in the world. Um, so, you know, a significant chunk of that went to your rent uh, and where you were staying. So, um, like where I currently am in China, um, I can save a lot more money than I did in Singapore. But at the same time in Singapore, I was pretty much, well, certainly compared to a regular teacher was what I currently am. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was a, a step up pay wise. OK, I'm going to quickly jump in before you answer that one, Mark. So um, I'll, I'll rephrase the question, which you have already answered, Dan. How does it compare to the UK or, or the States with disposable income? So once you've been paid, once you've paid out all your rent and all your all your bills and everything, how does it compare compare to working in the States, Mark? Well, I, I, it depends on the particular area of the world where you're teaching. Uh, the salaries in Latin America aren't that great. Um, the salaries in uh, Asia tend to be better. The salaries in the Middle East also tend to be very good. But, but you have to look at the entire package. And this is something I'm, I'm sure Dan would agree with, but you got to look at the package. So in... In America, um, I have my salary, but I also have a pension. You know that 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 I'll that I that I'll get when I retire. Um, when I went to Singapore, my salary was a little higher. Um, Singapore is a very expensive place, but there are a lot of perks that you get when you're teaching internationally. Uh, in Singapore, you get a, a housing allowance. And uh, I, I don't know, Dan, if you went over your allowance or not, but I, I stayed within my allowance, so I didn't have to pay anything extra. Um, so I, I, they provided me with a place to live. Um, I had public transit, uh, very good health insurance package. So I would say in Singapore at that point in my life, compared to America, I had the better package in Singapore. Now, when I moved to Zimbabwe, the money there isn't as good. The salary is not as good. So my salary was a lot less than I would be making in the United States. But they provided me with a four bedroom house, which I certainly would not have had in the United States. Um, again, the health insurance was was very good. Um, so it, it's it's hard to to weigh one versus the other. Um, in fact, one, I'm one of the, the great perks of teaching abroad is that normally uh, they will provide you with housing. You do get good health insurance. You might have other benefits, but, and this is something that Dan will face at some point if he continues to teach abroad, and that is that um, in most schools, you're not getting a pension. And this is something that, that is definitely an advantage working in America. Now my salary is higher because I've taught more years, but I also get that pension. So again, you have to look at each particular section of the world. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I know, I know it's not a question that you can answer either a yes or a no, but it is it is very kind of interesting to hear how how it is for your lifestyle. And as you said, Dan, you said, I dropped these responsibilities. I had um, less work commitments because I wanted to focus on leading the lifestyle that I wanted to lead. Whereas mm -hmm. if you were an assistant head teacher, I'm sure you'd spend much more time in school, wouldn't you? 
yeah, I think um, like Mark's absolutely right about the, the pension situation. You do stop making your contributions, but there are ways around that. You can, it's not as good as the UK teacher pension scheme, but you can get private pensions in the UK. Um, I myself have decided to invest in some property abroad and that kind of thing. Um, but in terms of the quality of lifestyle, I, I think that's something we haven't touched upon enough, really. And I think that's probably the bit that, for me, looking, you know, when I was sort of thinking about this, pre preparing for this chat, I looked through all my Facebook pictures of my Singapore album, and you know, it was just so many wonderful memories that, that came flooding back. Um, and amongst, uh, amongst all of them, the most paramount, I think, was just traveling, because Changi Airport is often voted the world's best airport. Uh, it really is incredibly just, you know, there's no customs if you if you live there. If you're a permanent resident, you just swipe through and walk through and it says hello and speaks your name. Valerie in Singapore, you can travel to, I mean, literally you can go to Thailand for the weekend and you don't have to feel guilty about wasting money because you're on such a good salary and you can go to a, a country where you can live like a king effectively or the Philippines or Indonesia, Myanmar. Um, so it really means to travel and to explore in a way that I couldn't do based in the UK. Uh, as much as I love my holidays to France and Ireland and Spain and so on, um, that was really splendid. And then, uh, and again, I know Mark's the, the, the more seasoned traveller of the two of us, but for me, um, just living in Singapore, a country with so much rich history, um, such fantastic cuisine, all of those things was really incredible. Um, and it's, it's very hard to list all the wonderful experiences. Um, but, you know, the food in Singapore, things like, bakute which is beef cooked in tea things like um lime juice or chili crab or the national dish or visiting the hawker centers that were there um was really really incredible um and obviously as a history teacher there's an awful lot of world war ii history there japanese war cemeteries uh, the national museum um there's just so much to see and do in singapore uh when you live there which is maybe different to when you you're a tourist there um so yeah, I think definitely there's a question of pension if you leave the UK to work in Singapore for a couple of years. Um, but the lifestyle in Singapore, if you don't mind the weather and the temperature, is is quite incredible. Yeah, I mean, no, I, no. I was I was going to say that we focused on we focused on a lot of the education system so far and um, and kind of uh, culture within schools out there and how how the international school is different to the Singaporean schools. However, we've not talked about lifestyle yet. We've not talked about what's taken you there. Yes, we've talked briefly about the finances. Let's talk about, you, like you just mentioned lifestyle and you just mentioned some of the perks of living out there. I mean, Mark, do you want, do you want to kind of elaborate on this? Talk about some of your experiences and why you loved it so much. I mean, again, I, I'm so enamored with travel and, and, and I'm chuckling thinking about um, you hear teachers describe all the reasons that, that they, they want to go and teach abroad and, and certainly, you know, to, to learn the culture and the challenges and whatnot. But um, anyone who says they're not going to teach abroad because they want to travel is lying. I mean, it is a phenomenal opportunity. Uh, when I was in Singapore, again, Dan had said with Changi Airport, uh, I visited 20 something countries on the continent, you know, things I normally couldn't afford when I'm having to pay for a flight each and every time. I, I went to Nepal and to China and Cambodia and Laos and Thailand, I mean, it's all, all over the place. And, 
and, and that was another one of the big draws for me going to Africa. Again, it's so far away, and if there are certain things you really cannot see other than, say, in the summer, um, or, or excuse me, in, in the winter and times when normally I'd be working. Um, so I was able to just, I go to Uganda and Rwanda and, and uh, Ethiopia and Egypt and all these places I'd always dreamed about. Uh, I, I would recommend anybody who gets into the profession of teaching consider teaching abroad. And it, 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 how else will you get this opportunity to live and work in all these exotic countries around the world and get paid you know, at, at the same time? I would still be teaching abroad, but there were some family health considerations that brought me back. But um, yes, I mean, you're going to give up uh, maybe a, a, a pension, some other perks, but the quality of life to me is unparalleled, you know, and, and, and to uh, just wake up every day. For me, like I, I didn't have a car in Zimbabwe. I was five minutes from work. I had a bicycle, but to every morning get up and be pedaling my bicycle with uh, with the sun rising, with the jacaranda trees. I mean, it's priceless. You, you talked about all these traveling opportunities. And again, I've got, um, I've got a few friends actually who are teaching in Thailand at the moment. And I mean, we're recording it for the listeners. We're recording this just after Christmas. And I know we, we've seen their, their photos are on some, it looks like some paradise Island. And I said to the wife, I said, they're always traveling. They're always, they're always somewhere new for the weekend or over the, over the short holidays. And, as someone myself who, who spent a couple of years abroad, it, it's very interesting when people say to you, oh, you're so lucky to be able to, to do this. And you're so lucky going off for the weekend and going off doing that. But it's, it's not luck. You're taking that gamble to make that lifestyle change, aren't you? Not necessarily every single person who goes to live abroad will enjoy it. But it's, it's the gamble you've got to take. And you're, you're taking that step out of your comfort zone to mm. try it. And when people yeah, say, oh, you're so lucky, it's not luck. You're, you're doing it for yourself. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, you just, and, and I have people all the time ask me this too, well, how could you do this? It's like, well, you just, you make that decision. You give up other things. You, you know, you, you go down a, a, this particular path in life, and I think it's well worth it. But um, yeah, yeah, it, 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 it's a phenomenal life. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that as well, I, I think, like I can remember when I flew into Singapore um, on my own on the airplane. It's about to land. It was circling around the, the Lion City, the island. Um, and I remember being absolutely terrified. And my first thought when we landed, well, and I, I was about to be met at the airport by the head teacher and so on. I remember thinking, well, if I really hate this, the term is like 36 weeks. I can do one year, no problem, and come back home. And that, that was a, a certain comfort. But just linking the, the kind of international and the teaching you know, some of the things that, that I will never forget about Singapore are things like going out on break duty uh, with an umbrella because there'd be long-tailed macaques in the playground. So there'd be, you know, part of your job was to chase off monkeys in case they could <laughs> get the students. And I look back on that now and I think, wow, did that really happen? Or, um, again, I remember going on a, a school trip, like back in the UK, I remember occasionally being disappointed not to be on a trip to Bramley Lakes or something similar in Norfolk. Um, and you know, I was on a. I, I remember playing cricket on Tioman Island, which is a beautiful tropical island off Singapore, uh, with the sun setting, with these wonderful students, and just thinking, "Wow, I'm being paid for this." Um, and again, like when Mark and I left the, the, the Singapore, I don't know if you remember Mark, but we 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 went to Sungai Bulo, 
and we saw uh, an oriental whip snake, uh, whip-tailed snake, I think it was called. And that was amazing just to see. And a couple crocodiles too, I recall. Yeah, crocodiles too and snakes. And, the, and just to be part of that and to have that around you, you know, coming from the UK was just absolute Tropicana, real cultural awakening. Um, and I think that, the, that, you know, for example, the, the monkeys in the playground, that's an overlap where your kind of life out of school and life in school do merge. Um, and for me, that was, that was the biggest pull about going to Singapore. It was that, that sense of um, doing the same thing, but doing it differently. Yeah, I, I was just going to say that, that um, I come from a country that, um, where people aren't necessarily eager to learn another language and um, they are not, uh, might not be as always as open-minded about other cultures. I think there's nothing that helps you grow more as a person than to be the foreigner, wherever that is, wherever that is. Um, I often tell people that if you live abroad for any period of time, I think you will find it impossible to hate any other culture because you know what it's like to be the foreigner. You know what it's like to be an outsider. And so I think all of us as human beings can benefit from spending time abroad. Those words, I think, are absolutely spot on. Absolutely spot on. With English being the main language in Singapore, did, did this influence your decision at all? Well, for, for me, it's, it certainly made, made, made life easier um, in that you could walk down the street and everything was signed in English and paperwork and admin was all in English. Um, I think there is a question about colonialism that lingers in Singapore. So, for example, um, you know, there's a, an MRT or tube station called Ung Mo Kyo. Uh, and Ung Mo was, um, I think it means red monkey or red face. Uh, and it was a term used for foreigners by by locals in colonial days. Um, so I think there is still an element of kind of a post-colonial hangover that some Singaporeans have. Um, but generally speaking, I think there are so many foreigners from so, diff so many different cultures, Malaysia, China, UK, elsewhere, um, that it, that wasn't an issue at all for me. And um, all Singaporeans that I met were very accommodating and very friendly. That's good. It's, it's, it's one of the things that lots of people traveling, again, I'm not sure what it's like from the States, Mark, but traveling from the UK that understandably lots of people would worry about thinking, oh, can I speak the language? But one of those things you don't need to worry about when you go to Singapore. Now, um, you did mention before about, oh, if I, if I wasn't sure about this job, it would only be a year and then I could come back home. Is it the general expectation upon teachers when they go to teach in an international school in Singapore that they stay for a year or are they expected to stay for longer? Yeah, it's a really good question. So um, obviously all schools are different. Um, and I think, you know, how I felt then as a new teacher compared to how I, teach, I feel now as an experienced international teacher is probably a bit different. Um, but um, yeah, I had a th my school had three-year contracts. I know many schools have two-year contracts. Um, but... Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think I think three years is a nice amount, um, and you'd often get a gratuity at the end if you completed and honoured your contract. Uh, but I think three years is a nice amount to see a country the size of Singapore. 
Okay, yeah, that's quite interesting that you put emphasis on the size of Singapore. So three years, but for Singapore, that is, like you said, a very small country. Um, I mean, you're nodding your head, Mark. Do you, do you agree with this or would you? Yeah, it, it, again, it varies, Rob, from country to country, but it seems like the norm is generally that uh, you sign a two-year contract and then you have the option to renew on a yearly basis. Uh, so, but again, it, it varies from country to country. And did either of you two come across or have met any staff who who haven't had such a good experience as you had and decided that it wasn't for them? You see that occasionally, uh, particularly maybe with younger individuals who haven't had a lot of travel experience. Maybe they, I would say particularly in less developed countries, they might get there and the accommodation isn't necessarily to their liking, or the um, maybe the administration is not uh, what it presented itself to be, you know, during the interviewing process. And and you will uh, occasionally, you know, see people who who do leave early. But it seems like that there's always options as far as um, either you know being able to get out of the contract earlier or um, you know come up with something. But I would say by and large that. Um, people either stay at least till the end of their term. Okay, and so okay, so it's it's not it's not an absolute disaster if people um, people do for some reason want to return back home. I mean, people might have their varying reasons, which is absolutely fine. But it's not an absolute disaster, I'm sure. Oh yeah, again, I mean it happens. I, I mean because you know spending two weeks abroad uh, isn't necessarily the same as living abroad. So that there are certain uh, challenges that that you're going to face anywhere when, you, when yeah. you're teaching in another country and some people it's just not their cup of tea so to speak okay um and earlier on dan you mentioned about um you mentioned about what it was well when we were talking about salary and you're saying oh my um when my rent went out i, I realized how much money um how much money this was what is the accommodation like in singapore because for me in my head i've got really built up um, areas you might be living in an apartment and there might be people who might not like the sound of this so is that the case everywhere uh, Singapore because it is such a, a small uh, country you have the high rises and whatnot um, very comfortable accommodations um, in Zimb and again most international schools with the exception of Europe will provide you with, with some sort of housing or some sort of stipend uh, in Zimbabwe, I showed up and here I am as a, as a single guy and they gave me a four bedroom house, you know, with a swimming pool and whatnot, which is again, part of that colonial vestige, um, you know, from, from being a former uh, uh, colony of the UK. So it, it just depends, but by and large with the individuals I've spoken with all over the world, the accommodations are quite, quite good. Okay. That's, uh, it's, it's Again, it's, it's something that people often see on the job adverts, saying, oh, you'll, you'll get accommodation with this job. And um, part of you can't help but think, will they just chuck you in some dive down the road where, where you've got cockroaches crawling all over the place? But you're saying that it's generally good accommodation. Generally good, but again, I have heard horror stories where people do end up in, in less than ideal situations. But I'd, I'd have to say, by and large, that... Um, that the accommodations are quite nice. Okay, it's, it's good to hear. And I'm, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people who, who do like to hear that. But 
I would also advise, I mean, this is someone who's not even worked abroad, but based on what you've just said there, look into it, check it out and ask the questions when you're, when you're going for an interview or when, you, when you're doing your Zoom or Skype interview or whatever it is you're doing to get that job. Ask those questions because you don't want to get caught short, do you? Yeah, and, and people who are, and I'm certainly not uh, uh, giving a plug, but uh, people who are interested in teaching abroad, there are certain organizations that um, uh, essentially are clearinghouses for, for different schools. I, I signed up with an organization called Certs Associates where um, you pay X number of dollars uh, to sign up. They post the jobs there. They post a description of, of the schools. They uh, outline the particular package that is offered at, at, at that institution. And uh, so you do have at least some information that helps you make an informed decision. Okay, so that was Search Associates, was it? Yeah. Search Dan, so did you go with them or did you go with another organization? Uh, no, I, I saw my job through tests, um, test jobs. Okay, so if if others were looking for jobs like this, I mean, you, you, I was going to ask you actually, how did the, how did the opportunity come about for you? But you both searched it out yourself. So you went through Search Associates, Mark. Dan, you mm -hmm. went through um, tests. How else might people be able to find these opportunities? There are a couple of other organizations. I, I can't. Uh, uh, their names don't come to me, but but. Uh, I'm sure just by doing an online search, you can find uh, uh, different, you know, groups that will uh, post jobs and it can give you information. Okay, so there's, there's none that you would particular. well, I mean, you obviously, you've had a great experience through Search Associates, and yeah. Dan, you've had a good experience through TESS. Um, any others that you would particularly recommend? Or, look, I'm happy for you to name and shame any if you've, if you've heard of it, because look, we're here to help people, so. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I've only ever found my job through test myself, but I, I've got a lot of colleagues who've been uh, to international jobs fairs. So if you Google international jobs fairs, um, you know, I've got, I've got many people who found really wonderful jobs um, through that. So, so I think that would be my main point. I think search associates, international job fairs, and also test international are three really good ways of looking for international posts. Okay, fantastic. Um, I think you, you both, are, for me, you've given me a really good insight as to what it's like teaching in Singapore and the lifestyle in Singapore. Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you both individually now, your summation of your time living and working in Singapore. So, Mark, I'm going to start with you, please. Uh, it, a wonderful experience as far as uh, I, I love the quality of the student. Uh, very motivated to learn. Uh, I love the opportunity to travel. Uh, one huge fan of the climate. In fact, I'll share a story with you. I was um, uh, in Uganda uh, following monkeys, you know, through the, through the, the, the forest on a day-long uh, outing. And uh, I came across a, a couple from Singapore. And uh, I said, oh, you know, I, I taught there for a couple of years. But after two years, and they didn't even let me finish the sentence, they said, and you left because you didn't like the climate. I'm like, no, no, it's a, it's a tropical rainforest climate. So that, that was the, um, certainly the, um, uh, one of the downsides for me. But overall, it was a, a, a pretty positive experience. So the climate, we're talking about hot, very humid, yep. get your yep. extreme storms. 
Okay, so and, and you weren't a fan of that. Um, Dan, I'm going to ask you the same, the same question. Your, can you summarise your experience in, of living and working in Singapore? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to summarise three years in a couple of sentences, but I would just say I worked with some really wonderful staff, um, of whom Mark was um, an absolute saint to work with. Um, but um, for me, it was uh, the cultural differences. So we mentioned things like the Chingay Parade, National Day, Teacher's Day, one I haven't mentioned is the Lohei, and the Lohei was a really, really nice thing when on Chinese New Year, all the staff would congregate in the dining area. There'd be a huge long table of salads. Um, I think the, the, the nuts and the other things were meant to represent silver and gold, and literally, you'd have your chopsticks. Very difficult for me as someone who'd never used chopsticks before, and you had to toss the salad as high as you possibly could and say Lohei, and that was, you know, it was just a really nice, you know, better than any insect I've ever had in the UK. Um, so <laughs> culturally, just really wonderful. Um, uh, and like I say, you know, preparing for this chat, I looked through lots of pictures and uh, images I took in my time there. And the thing that really stands out are, are the letters and the kind of cards that students have written, um, Singaporean students, about um, their time in my lessons. And, you know, I look back on that with real fondness. So... Um, I've really, really enjoyed working with Singaporean and non-Singaporean students during my time in Singapore and would wholly recommend it to anybody. Okay, I, I, th I mean, glowing reviews from the two of you. So, and I think this, it's, it's around this time of year, isn't it, that these international jobs start to come up. So, uh, and I'd say this time of year, when I mean, we're talking late December at the moment, is there any particular time in which you two would recommend people apply for these jobs? For me, it was a bit awkward, actually, when I applied for my job because... My school, because it, it was on a Southern Hemisphere calendar, so the job started in January. So I had to leave my UK school in January, which is obviously middle of the year in the UK, but start of the academic year for Southern Hemisphere. So that might be something to give thought to if you are considering applying, because obviously, you, particularly if you teach exam groups and that kind of thing, um, yeah. handover and transition is paramount. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would always say start early, but um, I got ooh, both of my jobs, I want to say in April and May, which was a little bit later in the process. So I, 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 there's always there's always opportunities out there, but it, I would start early if you can, can possibly do so. Look, I mean, look, we've, we've had this chat today and I'm, I'm, people don't need to necessarily be listening to this later on today or tomorrow to be able to kind of make that decision. People can listen to this for next year so they can think, oh, maybe, maybe I've missed the boat for this year, but next year I've, I've had a bit of time to think about it and now I want to kind of take that step. I want to make, I want to fill that application out and see what I can get. Um, look, I mean, you've both been absolutely fantastic and you've both given a really honest, really detailed account of your time in Singapore. Um, and I really appreciate you both coming on to chat about it because Look, I mean, like, like I said just earlier, is it's always something I've thought about. And when I have these chats with people who have had this experience working abroad, and Dan yourself, who is, who is still working abroad, it, it really makes me think. It really makes me think. And I think particularly um, with everything going on at the moment and uh, all things COVID-related, it, it's starting to make people think about their lifestyle choices, isn't it, and where they're going to go to next. So... You're definitely giving, well, giving me food for thought and giving, uh, hopefully, giving the listeners food for thought as well. Uh, it's a great life. I mean, I have to say it again. It's a terrific life, and I'd recommend it to anybody.
Yeah, well, yeah, you're both no regrets. saying no regrets. There we go. That's, I think that's a perfect end, uh, end to our conversation. So thank you both so much for coming on the Teacher Planning Podcast today. And uh, I'd, I'd love to chat to you both again soon. Sounds good. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Mark. Thanks thank you, Dan. Me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this alternative episode of the Teacher Planning Podcast. If there's any topics you would like to hear discussed, or even if you'd like to provide your own words of wisdom, please get in touch at teacherplan@outlook.com or reach me on Twitter or Instagram. Keep educating, keep learning.